The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio. I am Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist with a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And at Food Sleuth Radio, we help you think beyond your plate. Today, I have the wonderful fortune of interviewing um, a woman who is not a likely candidate to be a foodie or someone who was overly concerned about food, uh, Robin O'Brien, who is the author of a brand new book, The Unhealthy Truth. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted. You know, I think I saw your book online, um, and I should say that there's a second part to that title. It's The Unhealthy Truth, How Our Food is Making Us Sick, and What We Can Do About It. And you are a young mother, really, of four children. How did you come to write this book? You know, as you shared, I am a very unlikely crusader for this whole food movement. Um, as, as you as you may or may not know, you know, I was raised in a conservative family in Texas. Um, I was raised on capitalism in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, we had our fair share of Twinkies and Pool Boys as a kid. And so I had always just assumed if something was on the shelf that it was safe. Um, I went on, you know, after after college I went and got an MBA and graduated as the top woman in my class and had a full scholarship. And then I went into the world of finance and helped manage $20 billion in assets. And so I was such a deep believer in the system. Um, and then, you know, I traded my briefcase for a diaper bag. And one day my fourth child had an allergic reaction. And, I, you know, prior to that I had always dismissed the whole food allergy thing too. And so suddenly I found myself confronted with this um, condition that I wasn't familiar with, and I had heard a little bit about it in the press, but it seemed to always be a bit sensationalized and spun up. And so I began investigating and learned that from 1997 to 2002, there was a doubling of the peanut allergy. And if you extrapolate that out, 20% increase a year in the number of children with peanut allergy. And so I kept digging because I thought the numbers are telling their own story. This is an emotionally charged issue. I mean, we're talking about food. So what other numbers can I look to? And I learned that according to the Centers for Disease Control, there had been a 265% increase in the rate of hospitalizations related to food allergies. And it was stunning information. And I, I suddenly thought, since when did food get so dangerous to children? You know, I didn't know anybody that had a food allergy when I was a kid. And so, you know, since when did a PB&J and a carton of milk suddenly become like a loaded weapon on a lunchroom table. And so my education really began with that. So is that the reaction that your daughter had? Was it to peanuts? No, you know, I was serving scrambled eggs that morning over um, over breakfast. And, you know, to share quite candidly how I truly was not a foodie, as I write in the book, you know, that breakfast consisted of tubes of blue yogurt, some waffles, you know, from the freezer, and the scrambled eggs. And it had worked for my older three. And suddenly my youngest had an allergic reaction that, that morning. And so as I began to look into the food, I thought, you know, these children with a food allergy, as I quickly learned, they see food as a foreign threat. And so I thought, are there foreign things in our food? And as I began to learn more, I realized that beginning in 1994, we did begin to engineer foreign proteins into our food supply in order to enhance profitability for the food industry. And as a mother, I could, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that we had done that. But as a financial analyst, I, I understood. I mean, I can see why they would drive corporate profitability. 
And so as I stepped back, I, I wanted to see, you know, what has happened around the world? What have governments around the world done? And I, I learned that a lot of these foreign proteins and chemicals that we were putting into our food supply so recently had either been banned, removed, or labeled by governments around the world because of the health concerns. So you're looking at the genetic modification of foods as being a health threat. And I have to agree, you know, as a nutritionist, uh, I remember when these things were put through, and they were put through because of, uh, you know, there's really no other way to describe it, but this revolving door where industry is influencing government and then people are going back and forth. And um, as you describe in your book, uh, you know, these, these genetically modified foods then were accepted as safe essentially, never really fully tested with regard to the impact on the environment or human health. Uh, in your investigation of these things, what, what were the aha moments for you? Well, again, you know, to share with the listeners, I didn't know what a genetically modified organism was. You know, I, I was that naive, I was that unversed in, in the food supply. And, and as I began to learn that you know, scientists were using gene guns and live viruses to engineer our food supply in order to enhance profitability. In some ways, they did that with synthetic hormones that they injected into dairy cows, and that helped the dairy cows produce more milk. And as an analyst, I got that. But governments around the world said, we don't want this in our food because it makes these cows sick, it requires increased antibiotics, and then as studies continued to show, it was elevating hormone levels in the blood that were linked to growth prostate and colon cancer. And as I stopped, I thought, well, what numbers am I looking at here? You know, what is the rate of cancer in the U.S. versus around the world? And sure enough, the United States has the highest rate of cancer of any country in the world, according to the American Cancer Society. And migration studies show that if you were to move here from somewhere like Japan, your likelihood of developing cancer increases fourfold. And so as I learned that as a mother, it was just so dismantling and so incredibly difficult to learn, and I thought, you know, what else has changed? And I learned that a few years later, around 1996, scientists, again, using this technology, were able to engineer soy to make it high-sugar soy. And the reason they wanted to do that was because soy is primarily used to fatten livestock. And because there weren't a whole lot of studies that ever conclusively said this will be safe, I um, on studies that said, you know, this hasn't been proven dangerous. The governments around the world said it's never been proven safe. We don't know what it's going to do to obesity. We don't know what it's going to do to diabetes. And so, again, they didn't allow it into their food supply. And now, according to The Economist, diabetes is an American epidemic. And I thought, you know, what, what else? Like, what else has happened? And I learned that a few years later, after the soy and after the dairy, um, and, again, in order to enhance profitability for industry, scientists were able to engineer an insecticide into corn. And so rather than spraying it on the crops um, due to growing environmental concern, they were actually able to engineer that insecticidal protein into the seed of a corn plant so that as it grows, it releases its own insecticide. And again, as a mother, I thought, you know, how, how did we not know this? And, and if governments around the world considered it to have such potential health risks that they don't even want it, fed to their livestock or much less planted in their soil, what in the world are we doing with the possibility that this is blended into baby formula? And it was very dismantling information. So what do you think that parents can or should do? I mean, are there, are, are there studies that we can take to our legislators and say, look, you know, we've had this increase in allergies. 
are they indeed related to the genetic manipulation of our food? Can we prove that? Can we make a change in policy? I think, you know, sadly, again, you know, the, the industry-funded scientists, which as I go through in the book, you know, the people that are telling us that this is safe, a lot of them serve on the Speaker's Bureau of these corporations or they've invented patents for these corporations. There's a vested interest there. And again, to step back and say, okay, if industry-funded research is going to say one thing, which according to Harvard researchers it always does, it always tends to favor industry, then perhaps we need to fund some independent studies. And as I highlight in the book, you know, sadly we just, we haven't budgeted for that as a country. And a perfect example is that for 2009 we allocate $600 billion to the Pentagon and again, raised in a conservative family, and both of my parents were in Vietnam, I have profound gratitude for the military. But if we're, if we're allocating $600 billion to the Pentagon and only $2 billion to the FDA, then the FDA doesn't even have a budget to begin to conduct independent studies. And so, therefore, they do rely on these industry-funded studies by the very same corporations that are selling the product. Yeah, you know, you make an excellent point about the funding of our agencies that are really designed to keep us safe. And, you know, politically we hear people say, you know, we don't want big government and we don't want to pay more taxes. And yet it's, it's our, we have to have some agency that oversees or that watches these groups to provide some sort of, um, you know, making sure that they're credible and they're accountable. Where but even more than even more than that, I think what is more important, because again, you know, trying to find budgeting and financing right now, especially during these economic times, is incredibly difficult. What I think is probably one of the best, most effective, cost-efficient ways to address this is to have full transparency and disclosure of the funding, so that as these doctors are talking about how safe this is and how we needn't worry our heads as mothers, you know, about these concerns. If they actually had to wear a baseball hat with those logos that they take money from, you know, as they spoke on CNN, we would evaluate their opinions differently. And I think that's an incredible first step. Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't cost the taxpayer anything. It doesn't require additional funding at the federal level. It simply gives us access to full information so that we can make an informed choice as, you know, a nation of 300 million eaters. What do you hope this book will accomplish? I think that probably one of the most important things is that it can inform and inspire people because it's not complicated science. A lot of the industry-funded researchers would perhaps want us to believe this, but you have to step back and remember that mothers, eaters, dads, grandparents, little kids around the world, they're not eating this stuff. It's not complicated. They understood why they didn't want to eat this stuff. And from Russia to the U.K., across Europe, Japan, Australia, they've been given an informed choice. And so it's either labeled or it's not in their food supply. And, again, you know, I think that that offers real inspiration. And as I stepped back and thought, okay, well, our corporations, they are still selling products overseas. You know, what are they doing in the formulation of the products that they sell overseas? And what I learned was that Kraft, Coca-Cola, and Walmart are American corporations. They formulate the products differently that they sell overseas, and they don't include these ingredients. And at first, that was a bit depressing to learn, but then I thought, you know, we're not asking them to reinvent the wheel. They simply need to hear from us. And as they do, they're recognizing the fact that they need to take better care of their consumers and their own families because, sadly, as a country, we are very sick. We're dealing with a lot of health care costs. Health care right now devours 17.6% of our GDP. 
And there are not families in the country that aren't somehow impacted by the rates of cancer, by autism, allergies, ADHD, or asthma, given that those conditions now affect one in three kids. Mm. Well, you know, one of the things that we, uh, in the American Dietetic Association, there's a small practice group called um, the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Practice Group of uh, Dietitians, and we're very concerned about how, how our environment and how our food interacts. And one of the things that we've really been lobbying for is the labeling of genetically modified ingredients. And right now, the only guarantee that a person has, a parent who's feeding their children, if they want to avoid genetically modified food, only the organic label gives us that guarantee. And in many markets, we don't even, as parents feeding our families, as gatekeepers, you know, the food buyers, we don't even have that choice. Either Absolutely, and not to mention that this is a social justice issue. This shouldn't be something depending on where you sit on the socioeconomic ladder or what kind of income you make. As a nation of 300 million eaters, we all deserve access to affordable food that doesn't contain these chemicals or at least at the very least is labeled. And so what I do address in the book, again, is we have to step back and we have to look at why is organic food more expensive. Well, interestingly, the federal government subsidizes the crops that contain these chemicals and these genetically engineered proteins, and yet at the same time, they charge the organic industry and the organic farmers fees to then prove that their stuff doesn't contain these chemicals and these proteins and these ingredients. And then on top of that, there are extra fees to then go on and label it. So in a sense, at the federal level, we're taxing the organic farmers to prove that their stuff is, is safe. Exactly. And and as you step back, as I stepped back, I thought, you know, well, what are governments around the world doing? They simply call organic food food. And the ones that are responsible for the labeling are the ones that contain these chemicals, these insecticidal proteins, and these, and these additives. And so, you know, again, to stop and say, if we were to have an even allocation of resources, if the organic industry could be given equal footing, it would bring those costs down, it would make it more accessible and more affordable to absolutely every family in America, which is where it should be. Absolutely. You know, Robin, I also looked at your website that you've established called AllergyKids.com, and um, I want to make sure that our listeners know about this as a resource. And tell us a little bit about what you found about some of the other organizations that also promote themselves as being, um, you know, a supportive network for parents with children with allergies. Well, you know, interestingly, as I share in my story, you know, I've earned the nickname Food Darren Brockovich, and it's, it's really, um, there are some pretty good reasons. I've received cease and desist letters from some very large organizations out of D.C., and as I began to, um, you know, I, I joke in the book, they were having an allergic reaction to me, and I couldn't understand why. <laughs> I, was, I, had, I had founded Allergy Kids to help identify and protect the children with allergies. I felt that there needed to be almost like a pink ribbon for these kids because they were so pervasive, and so that's what I designed. And when I received the cease and desist letter, I thought, this makes no sense. I'm a mother of four trying to raise awareness and raise money for this important cause. And um, so I pulled their financial statements, and I learned that the largest food allergy nonprofit was funded by the food industry. And again, I thought, you know, what incentive might they have um, to be funded by the food industry, and how did I not know? as I share with the reader in the book, you know, they didn't disclose it. And so at the time, you know, their website was solely funded by Kraft, and there was nothing wrong with that. However, it would have been informative as a mother when I was weighing their opinions and their doctor's opinions if 
there had been a craft logo somewhere on that site. Right, and if, in the sponsorship, so. and if there would have been some uh, information also saying that Kraft Foods uh, frequently contain genetically modified ingredients, mostly in our country, of course, those being corn and soy right, and canola. Absolutely, and so, you know, as I did learn about these doctors who served on the speakers' bureaus, you know, as I highlight in the book towards the end about all of the funding that these doctors are able to receive, you know, in our system, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's allowed. There's nothing wrong with it. There might some, some might call into question ethically, but again, to simply have full disclosure so that we know that these doctors are taking money from big food and big pharma, and that then as a mother you can say, okay, well maybe I want to also weigh more heavily the independent doc guy, you know, the doctor who's not sponsored by industry, and see what he has to say. And so, as I share in the book, I highlight these brilliant scientists who have incredible integrity. And I really do, as I've been on Good Morning America and the early show and all of these national programs, I'm so thrilled to highlight the work of these doctors and invite them into the discussion. You know, what's so interesting about all this is that you come to the table with a finance background. And for all of us, you know, for the 65,000 dietitians that are, you know, supposedly the experts in food nutrition it takes a finance major and a mother of four to lift the veil on issues that we really should have been at the forefront uh, lobbying against well you know and it's just i think it's not just in the food industry i mean we've seen what failure to disclose and lack of transparency and deregulation has enabled in the bank Right. And we've, got, we've had the same deregulation, lack of transparency, and failure to disclose in food. And so the parallels are very strong between the two industries. It has enhanced profitability. As stockholders, we have all benefited, but we're also all eaters and we're shareholders in the food supply. And I think it, it has created um, a disadvantage. Absolutely. And I love the way you say, you know, you're... So often, those of us who are who care about the environment or who care about the food are labeled as tree huggers, and you say, no, I'm a kid hugger. And I think that all of us, as you say, no matter where you are, no matter what socio- socioeconomic class that you uh, fall under, we all care about our children. And wouldn't it be nice if all of the decisions we made in the world were based on whether or not this was good for future generations? But, you know, I think that's always been an argument, but even more poignantly is that we are a nation of 300 million eaters. And when you look at the fact that, according to the American Cancer Society, we have the highest rates of cancer of any country in the world, that one out of eight women gets breast cancer and only one out of ten of those cases are genetic, that means nine out of ten of those cases are environmentally triggered. And we all have mothers. Absolutely every single one of us, regardless of whether we have children. Right. And so I think, again, you know, there is a social justice thing. We have, you know, we have a system that has allowed enhanced profitability for industry. And as I stepped back and thought, why in the world would we have done this? You no, know, I did. I, as I address in the book, we have in the United States a commercial health care system. So there's profitability in prescribing, and there's no profitability in preventing. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. governments around the world have structured their healthcare systems differently so that if their populations were as sick as all of us, they would shoulder that burden as taxpayers and it would absolutely destroy their economy. And so therefore they have a much stronger incentive to say, we are not going to allow this until it has been proven safe. Whereas here in the U.S. we say, we'll allow it until it's proven dangerous. That's so sad. You know, um, 
you mentioned the cease and desist letter that you received, and I wonder, um, have you received other threatening letters or phone calls telling you to stop what you're doing and saying? No, you know, actually, um, the the it was interesting because the book published on May 5th, and then I appeared on the Today Show May 6th. And on May 7th, I did receive an email from um, the Corn Refiners Association. Actually, it was, it was actually from the global publicity firm for the Corn Refiners Association. Um, and they were concerned not about what was written in the book, but rather they were concerned about an open letter to Michelle Obama that I had written, Dear Mother in Charge, um, that was posted on the Huffington Post. You can find that on my website at robinobrien.com, in which I simply highlight the concerns we've had with the FDA, the headlines about beef recalls large enough to feed every American two hamburgers or the high fructose corn syrup that contained the mercury or the salmonella or the spinach tainting, and to stop and say, you know, this generation of children is very sick. They have earned the nickname Generation Rx. Of course, to the Centers for Disease Control, one in three Caucasian kids and one in two African-Americans born in the year 2000, which is my daughter's third grade class. Of those children, one in three and one in two are expected to be insulin dependent by the time they reach adulthood. And again, when we, spent, we stop and we say, what is the economic impact of this going to be on all of us because of the health of these children? So, Robin, uh, I'm glad you mentioned your website, and I should say that your name is spelled R-O-B-Y-N-O apostrophe B-R-I-E-N. And the book, The Unhealthy Truth, How Our Food is Making Us Sick and What We Can Do About It, um, just published this year. If you eat and if you have children that you care for, especially, make sure you go out and put this on your summer reading list. I want to ask you another question. Um, we've, we've tried to jump around and, and look at some different issues that jumped out at me from this book. Have I not covered something? Is there something that you want to make sure that, that the listeners hear about your research? Absolutely. I think the most important part of that title of the book is what you can do about it. And as I learned, we were able to do it with picky eaters, a limited budget, and no time. And so as I come into Chapter 7 and Chapter 8 of the book, I share how I am so humbled to share that I was able to engage people like Aaron Brockovich and Bobby Kennedy and a lot of different people who were crusading on different pieces about this. You know, I didn't share with my family at the time that I was reaching out to Bobby Kennedy because I thought, you know, that may not go over so well down in Texas. But as I, as I really share with the readers, there are amazing things that we can do, and it is being part of that change that is so inspiring, and it's so fulfilling, and it's so nourishing that you'll want to do more. And the thing is, I do suggest don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. In our house with my four kids, we started with baby steps, and that as we began to grow as a family and as we began to make these very small tweaks and these very slight modifications, it felt so good that we found ourselves wanting to do more. And so I offer these tips. I mean, we went from blue yogurt to white yogurt with sprinkles. It wasn't perfect, but it was a whole lot better at re reducing the chemical exposure that my kids were getting, you know. And instead of using the entire pack of the fluorescent orange powder on the noodles, we started slowly using less and less of that packet until we got down to half the pack. And then eventually the kids got used to noodles that weren't fluorescent orange. And so I do suggest... Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. You have to start with baby steps. 
you know, a great way to look at it is it takes a while to potty train a kid or to wean them from a sippy cup and to take that same approach. Are you optimistic that we will see genetically modified foods labeled? I think, sadly, what has happened is that the children are so allergic. This generation of kids is incredibly allergic. And when you look at the fact that those genetically engineered proteins contain novel allergens that have never been proven safe and that our country has the highest rates of these childhood epidemics, that it is absolutely time. And I don't think there needs to be separate legislation. I think just as we label the top eight allergens, genetically engineered protein should be included in that list. Well, so I, you would simply amend the Food Allergy Labeling Act to include genetic proteins because they, are, they contain foreign allergens. You know, that's really a brilliant approach. And I hope that uh, US, the USDA head, Tom Vilsack, has seen your book because, um, of course, food, health, and agriculture is what really this is all about. You know, we eat food, but food has to be produced and it's processed, and that's the whole that's the whole issue that USDA and FDA and EPA all look at. So I hope the heads of these organizations have seen your book and we're trying to make sure that that your word gets out. I know you've been traveling all over the country uh, with this very, very important message. Our time is coming to a close, but I want to thank you, Robin, so much. Uh, you know, what you've done is... You've done what dietitians uh, like myself have been trying to do for decades. Your book is phenomenal. Your message is incredibly important. And I want to thank you for helping to save future generations. Uh, to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us. This is Food Sleuth Radio. It is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.